You're listening to Social Science Talk Science Fiction, a podcast where social scientists, philosophers, researchers and theorists discuss the themes and works of science fiction. Before the podcast, we'd like to thank Morgan, who left us a review on iTunes. Thanks, Morgan. Reviews really help us out, so if you'd leave one, we'd be more than happy to give you a shout-out on the show. If not, feel free to get in touch with us on Twitter, at social underscore sci-fi. Enjoy the show, and thanks for listening. In his 1969 novel, Slaughterhouse-Five, the author Kurt Vonnegut comes to describe how the book was written. It is so short and jumbled and jangled, Sam, because there's nothing intelligent to say about a massacre. Everybody is supposed to be dead, to never say anything or want anything ever again. Everything is supposed to be very quiet after a massacre, and it always is, except for the birds. And what do the birds say? All there is to say about a massacre. Things like, Pootweet! Joining me to discuss this non-linear novel are three fellow academics. I'm Matthew Campbell. I'm Alex Hoseason. Dovan Powell. And I'm Gillian McFadden. So, um, I guess we'll start with Alex, because... Uh, we took the unusual step this month of Alex being the one to pick the novel. Sorry, Dr. Hasseason being the one to pick the novel. Um, so, when you get started, why did you want to pick Slaughterhouse-Five? It's quite personally important to me, just because uh, I think one of the things that bothers me about a lot of the science fiction I was, I was reading and watching and everything else, like, like Star Wars and so on and so on, is, 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 is that is there's a hero, right? And I've said this before on the podcast, that I've, I've, I've got a real thing about novels that have heroes because I normally want them to die at the end or you know at least end the story in some way um, and and the other thing is all these kind of you know all these kind of planets you see and experience and everything else in these films and games and books there's always the kind of main character that you, you follow throughout their kind of heroic journey or whatever um, and this seems to pay at least a little bit more attention to the people who are forgotten as soon as the main hero is zipped off and, 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 and kind of buggered off into space or or whatever, um, and I think that it, it was quite important for me in that sense because it tries to at least go some way to illustrating or portraying the people on the receiving end rather than the giving end of chaos, death, and destruction. In a way that what it, I, I think what it sacrifices in kind of plot and predictability and everything else, it makes up for in its ability to portray a character. At, a lot of different levels and quite literally at different times and in different places. I mean, well, this is a war novel in which the protagonist doesn't get a gun until the very end and even then he never uses it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's fundamental to its receiving end perspective. No, absolutely. I mean, he's always on on the receiving end of, of you know, whatever the tides of history are, um, you know, whichever direction the tides of history are pushing him in. I, th- I think there's several points of the novel where having come unstuck in time he's actually quite shocked at someone else having the idea that he might have agency so when the German uh, the old old German man kind of berates him for taking war lightly and dressing up in his silver boots and his azure blue toga he's, he's profoundly shocked at the idea that this kind of comic outcome had absolutely anything to do with him whatsoever and he doesn't know what to make of that so I mean Billy as a character is essentially this, this is Kurt Vonnegut decompressing his own experience of war. And Gillian, you, your academic research is on people dealing with trauma and having to communicate that as refugees. Mm. What does this book, what's it doing in terms of trauma and memory? I think it's really interesting in this regard because 
my own background is in like on memory and trauma and how we can construct and articulate um, our memories and how we how memories are constructed um, the the narrative formation of them also like the credibility within the memories um, how we recall how we recall them accurately um, and I think this whole book is actually testament basically to like memory traumatic memory especially and, and probably also to PTSD as well though though I, I don't know too much about that in that regard it's it's a non-linear book, you know, as that it jumps between different snapshots of basically what is either Billy's or potentially Von Gut's living understanding of how we understand the war. Um, we kind of we jump in and out of actually the war itself, going back to more peaceful times, Quarter's marriage, was his children, his daughter's wedding, um, and that doesn't. It doesn't take away from the book, and I think that's a really important part of it. These smaller snapshots that he that he introduces us to, it's not these. They are tangents, as it. But you try to get a deeper sense of actually what Billy is about, and I think that's actually how the memory helps us to build up towards this final, ultimate. You know, the last the last chapter, basically, when we work out actually what his direct experience was in Dresden, and it's all leading up towards this, basically. But you also realise that it's not the end point just for Billy either. That there's Dresden, and as much as Dresden is, when he's writing it out in like the, the wallpaper, it's a big line of X's, and he's like, that's the end point. But it's not because he's able to trans, he's go, he's able to go beyond it further. But I think it's realising though that memory for him it's, it's not going to be linear it's fragmented it's it's higgledy piggledy basically but it's still a story and just because it's fragmented doesn't mean it's not true either it's trying to get through the the, the reality of how he's understanding it basically um it's difficult to read in that sense because you're trying to wonder you don't really know what's going to be happening next you don't know what decade you're going to be in you don't you don't know if you're going to be sent back to the war again but it's his picture that he creates basically of actually just his overall life and just like how Dresden is always a point within that life as well though regardless of its prior or to or afterwards as well though it always takes us back and that's why also I think at the end the book it finishes in Dresden he goes back to it eventually it's kind of the traumatic event in itself it rips him in time and he goes back that's my understanding though I think one of the things because I, I was thinking about your work, which I've read a little bit of, right? While while I while I was reading this, and one of the things that struck me again, I mean, obviously reading it with a slightly different context this time, is that you end up with these kind of um, equivalences in official narratives, right? I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the things you you talked about a lot in 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 your thesis and the stuff that you're doing at the moment was about how kind of the effective silence of refugees covers up an entire biography, right? An entire field of experiences and narratives and a memory, quite literally. Um, and I, I was struck by the fact that when he tries telling the general brigadier, what's-his-face, about him being in Dresden, he's ignored. Mm. And then at a later point, chronologically, although we come at it at an earlier point in the book, he's on a radio show trying to tell people about Trafalgar, and he's ignored, yeah. and and the, those kind of things cover up this entire rich experience and all the way that it, it's interlinked 
purely as a function of kind of power, right? I mean, they say he's ejected gently from the radio studio. Um, although his ideas seem to gather some traction later on because he gives a lecture on it or something. Well, this is interesting, right? Because by the time Vonnegut comes to write the book, he's already an established author. And people ask him to write a war memoir or a book about Dresden. And of course, this is the opposite experience to both Billy in the book, where nobody wants to know about Dresden, but also the, actually the experiences of post-World War II authors. So famously... Um, Catch-22 was very poorly received when it was first published because everyone thought the war was great. Um, Primo Levi started writing and nobody wanted to know. So I think in that respect that Billy's experiences very clearly mirror the power structure of you want to tell us what we want to know about history. And you can't, right? Because when we, were, when we read a book about war, we want a detail of which battle was when and who moved which tanks on what day. When we ask an asylum seeker to tell us what happened to them, we want a detailed, a cohesive idea, which we can then declare to be true or false. And, well, Vonnegut explains to us that you can't do memory like that. Yeah. I think it's also like trying to... How do you articulate the, the worst trauma that you've potentially experienced up to that date as well? But that's the main point about... With the asylum seekers, basically, to, kind of, to take the conversation away slightly, is how do you articulate something that's forced you to move? How do you actually put words in to convey such a, a traumatic experience basically yet that's all the whole process of the story that's the whole process of this novel we're meant to be actually finding out what Dresden was about I for this book still don't fully understand what Dresden was about because he doesn't actually explain it for me all that well we have this discussion of there was the fireballs and the firestorms and we have the small story about the young girls but other than that we don't actually get a sense of what happened at Dresden we're left with there was this event and I was there but he didn't experience it he was in the cellars so we still have this abstraction. And it goes back to the famous quote at the beginning, basically, is that how do you articulate something that's almost un- inarticulatable? Yeah. If that's the correct word, sorry. Yeah. Um, how do you convey it? I mean, certainly for Billy, he's in the cellar when the firestorm happens. The description of the firestorm is actually handed to him second-hand by other characters in the novel. The only thing Billy talks about with any... Re- well, it's not Billy, the author talks about with any repeated detail is that one of the main characters will be shot for stealing a teapot and then it just happens and it's very quick and it's almost a nothing incident so the, the book sort of pulls us away from actually being able to understand yeah no, well it's the, it's the German guards stories about what happens above ground that's that's what Billy repeats that's that's his experience his experience he can only take it or he can only articulate the ex- experience through the words of other people um, and you're right. It's it's he, it's a book about something he can't talk about throughout the entire book, um, which which is which makes it so interesting uh, because you you desperately try and find out what this experience is because it's so um, grotesquely fascinating. This this ultimate fire storm in in Dresden that you know is coming, uh, and you still don't get to see or hear Billy Pilgrim or Kit Vonnegut's own position on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it goes back also to the fact that none of the survivors are ever going to actually yeah. be able to account for what happened in Dresden because those who are able to understand and fully have ex- witnessed uh, Dresden aren't here to account yeah. it basically and it goes back to basically Primae Levo's understanding <coughs> of the Holocaust is like only those who fully witnessed and experienced a holocaust would ever be able to tell us about it but they're not here to survive easily and it's only those at the perimeters at the margins 
kind of looking in from the shadows who are actually able to try and articulate to a certain extent, but we're never able to fully understand it. And this is why we're always kind of this passive looker on. And, 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 and to go back to Alex's point about he likes heroes that die, well, if we want something to be historically true... Life's a bit strong. <laughs> well, one of, the fu- one of the functions of war fiction is that if it's based on a true story, it's almost certainly going to be about a survivor. Well, I think um, I was what yeah. I was going to say next, actually, is... I mean, having read a lot of the stuff, particularly about the Holocaust, um, the problem with the articulation of that is anyone that fully witnesses an event like that doesn't live to tell the tale. That's kind of the point. Right? And, and even the... I mean, the, actually, the closest thing we get to a kind of more linear explanation of what happened in the novel is when he's watching someone else's media about bombing, which is... A, a TV thing, I think, and 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 even then he experiences it backwards, mm-hmm. um, which turns into this kind of weirdly Stunning beautiful section in the novel, yeah. Um, well, the scene where he talks about them hoovering up the bombs. They hoover up the fire, and then the bombs disappear back into the airplanes, and then they all and land. then they get dismantled. At yeah, the end. yeah, yeah. Um, but I think to come back to the point about what happens when that kind of um, comes into contact with power. I mean, it, it, it flies into the it flies in the face of everything that we expect or culturally expect a soldier to be. And I think this is exactly the same as, as you said earlier, um, sorry, it's exactly the same as Catch-22, which you mentioned earlier, because in that, when Yossarian's asked if he doesn't want to, why he doesn't want to fly any more missions, they say, well, every time I go out there, someone tries to kill me. And the official response to that is, well, they're, She's trying to kill everyone, and he says, "Well, you know, what difference does that make?" You know, I mean, it's a remarkably similar, yeah. similar character. I mean, you know, Billy Pilgrim isn't able to think in terms that are prescribed in that way. Well, for for both Kurt Vonnegut and Joseph Heller, it's not a. So when we expect war fiction, it's America versus Germany, whereas of course for both those authors, it's not. It's per- perpetrator of violence versus victim of violence, and in both the novels, the um, protagonist, if we can call Billy Pilgrim a protagonist, the protagonist in both novels experiences violence at the hands of the American Air Force. I think three of us are fairly confident in this being an anti-war novel. <laughs> and uh, I now, I now put Donald on the spot in that he rather rashly earlier suggested that it is not an anti-war novel. You're in quite an anti-war mood, though. Um, <laughs> I, I just don't see it as an explicitly anti-war. Of course, you've got a yeah, it's written during the Vietnam War, and there's there's a reason why it's probably written during the Vietnam War. Um, but I don't necessarily see it as, a, as an anti-war book, only that the argument that he seems to be making, because I don't think Vonnegut, as he sometimes is accused of, is this kind of Billy Pilgrim or a Trafalgarian. One of them. <laughs> he's not of that viewpoint. I don't think he's of that viewpoint where you can just accept death for work. So it goes, that kind of view. But I don't think that's that's his viewpoint. Um, but I think what he's arguing in the book is that the only way human beings can cope with this level of violence and destruction, or at least experience this level of violence and destruction, and if you're going to take, take part in war, you're going to have to experience that, then the only way you can do it is either by being a child, a, ch- a child's crusade, and you, you, you childishly look at it like... Um, uh, like what's his name the guy who's a three musketeer who thinks he's a three yeah. musketeer you either see it like that or you adopt this um, reimagining of the whole conflict of the whole experience you reimagine it like Trafalmadorians do and you pretend that it doesn't really matter anyway or that you were doing it for a good reason anyway and you disassociate yourself from 
from the actual uh, experience of it. So it's it's more an argument, if there is an argument, that it's an argument that human beings aren't suited to wage war. Not that war is necessarily a good or a bad thing. It, it transcends the question of good or bad morals by just being inherently destructive. Um, no, that human beings aren't capable of waging war and dealing with it. And, and, and you have to accept that as, as part of what war is. Um, well, I mean, he, he does I think make that's the... different to being simply anti-war. Well, yeah, and suddenly when Billy's in the hospital, and so there's the officer there, who and Billy says that I was at Dresden, and the officer immediately feels like he has to defend yeah. the decision to bomb the city. And Billy's actually, well, no, I'm not making a statement about whether it was right or wrong at all. I just want someone to know what it was like. But in order for Billy to leave that hospital, he has to go, he has to agree with him, with the doctor that the bombing was was right. He has to see it in this kind of children's crusade perspective, because if he keeps just concentrating on the experience, he can't cope with it. He's still mad, as far as the rest of society is concerned. I think I mean it's it's quite clearly deeply nihilistic, right? In in a lot of ways, I I, I think the most obvious um, the the most the most obvious parallel is. You know, that's highlighted repeatedly in the book is this kind of constant, uh, constantly comes back to the innocence of Jesus, right? Yeah. And and I think it's is it at the beginning of the book that it says the cattle are lowing, yeah, well, the, it, the baby it, it awakes later as well, yeah, little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes, or whatever, you know. And then clearly, you know, the the points after that, at least chronologically in the book, he can't stop crying. All, all he does is cry repeatedly. But he does so quietly, right? Because well, he does so quietly, yeah. absolutely. But he he can't take that on. He can't think back in those terms without being confronted by something which utterly eludes him in any in any reasonable fashion. So I think I don't know whether it matters whether it's an anti-war book or or not. I mean, I I, I think. It doesn't prescribe that, right? I mean, it doesn't prescribe that in advance and say, look, this is a book about this aspect of war and why it's so bad, which, which is what Catch-22 does, yeah. right? I mean, it's inherently about rationality. What it does do, though, is throw this thing in front of you. And, and you know, the, the preface slash chapter one or whatever is all about, well, this is all I've got. Yeah. You know, here it is and you can read it if you want. You know, he's foreshadowing a lot of the kind of trends in fiction that followed. Um, he's throwing it out there and saying, well, actually, and I think the question for us is actually, can you read it and face up to it fully and not then take something away from it in that sense? Yeah. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an aesthetic experience, right? He's yeah, saying, it's a novel about experience and not a novel about action. So he's, again, coming back to this point about whether war is moral or anything like that, he knows he's not, he, he's consciously not dealing with that. He's dealing with experience, which isn't a question of morality or whether something's right or wrong. It's more but, of a question I mean, of, but this might be, a, this is a deliberately naive question, but how could you read the novel and not come to any other conclusion? That the bombing was... Immoral. Yeah. Um, I don't think you can, but I don't think you need to. I mean, no, that's kind I mean, of the point. This is this is Guernica, right? I mean, this is what Picasso's famous painting uh, was. It the Spanish Civil War. It was? Yeah, yeah. So you know, this this kind of horrifying painting that they ended up putting up in the UN 
um, which incidentally, when the war, uh, vote for war in Iraq went through the UN, they covered uh, with a blue curtain. Um, but you know that that's the that's the idea. I mean, there's 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 some experiences, i.e., you know, in in the case of Slaughterhouse Five, in the case of, of of Guernica, which at least the kind of idea behind it is that it's as closely as it's possible to distill human suffering to the extent that even some kind of baseline recognition, taking that novel seriously, requires that you take some kind of aesthetic judgment. But the important thing is that it doesn't tell you what that's going to be in advance. It doesn't say, well, actually, actually it kind of does, doesn't it? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, chapter one is, chapter one is, is the woman saying, I'm concerned you're going to write a novel that's pro-war, and Kurt Vonnegut explicitly saying, no. So... No, no. He t- he says he's not going to write a a novel that, that, that people are going to grow up wanting to be right. That the children aren't going to read it and think that they want to go to war, because he's going to write about the experience rather than the the, the actual action of going to war and and, and what individuals do in war. That's right. I mean, I'd be glad of the book in front of me. <laughs> I thought he'd be more assertive in saying. Yeah. Her whole point was because she's just like, no, she's like, you were babies. She's like, you were not men fighting this, and she's like, and I'm worried you're going to do this and be played by you know. Frank Sinatra and he's like no it's not a war film and then it goes to the quote about he's like well why not just write an anti-glacier an anti-glacier book. book instead because it's just as inevitable there's always going to be war this is the whole point of it even when he's writing this his son's in Vietnam there's always war there's always going to be this 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 this, this need within humans yeah. and I think that's kind of going how do we deal with it then though? And, and, and how do we then deal with the issues of death as well though it's always there it's always present um I viewed it very much as anti-war. <laughs> That's my own position. Especially, I think, within the beginning, he's like, you know, I, I warn my son, stay away from massacres, stay away from infinite impacts on massacres as well, though. And I think even the quote that you discussed earlier on about the the reverse, the reversal of Dresden, mm-hmm. but he takes it back even to the, the, the deconstruction of the bombs themselves to kind of say that they have to be completely removed altogether. They no longer exist. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not even just explaining, you know, if you were to have a normal war narrative of just saying, you know, they dropped the bombs and it was horrendous, blah, blah, blah. He's actually talked about the industry and the creation of these these, these items themselves, though. And I think that highlights the fact that he's, like, he's removing them all together. They, they no longer exist for him. So for me, I'm kind of going, he's taking it one step further, you know, going to the heart of the matter. I think, I, I, I think we're actually all in agreement, right, in some ways. But I, I, I think Dove's choosing to... Generated Choo- no, he's choosing he's choosing different terms, right? Yeah. I mean, what what but is his, his... what is certainly the case is that when 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 you say it's not a novel of action, you know, a linear historical narrative of well, should they have firebombed Dresden or not, or should they have dropped nuclear bombs or not? You know, these kind of classic problems of historiography. You know, could they have stopped the Cuban Missile Crisis before? You know, or whatever. How close did the world come to nuclear war? All of these things fundamentally take for granted that things proceed from point A to point B to point C and there's some chain of cause and effect. Right? He's, well, he's blowing that wide apart. Yeah, um, by explicitly making it non-linear, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's quite interesting because cause it is a work of fiction, basically. But you know from the start, Dresden's always going to happen. Yeah. We knew Dresden will always happen. So, so it goes back to just, it was inevitable, basically. We yeah. can never have a war without it basically happening because it was just built in, sadly. You know, there doesn't have to be have any justification or rationale for it. It happened because it needed to happen. And the way he reframes it, that's how he seems to make sense of it, you know. 
Well, internally, because if the novel, I mean, at least internally, rejects the idea of free will, then you can't describe blame for the act of conducting a war, mm. right? Definitely. Yeah, and there's numerous points at which he actively chooses not to intervene with a plane crash uh, that kills his father-in-law and, mm. by the sound of it, half the world's population of optometrists. Yeah. Um, you know, his 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 son being there as as kind of, you know, the universal soldier or whatever. Um, you know, he he actively withdraws from that. I mean, that that's the I forgot what it's called, predestination paradox or whatever. Yeah. You know, where you end up reinforcing actions because you've been told they're going to happen, yeah. right? A man often meets his fate on the road he takes to avoid it. Right. Yeah. So I mean, that's a kind of slightly more fundamental question, which isn't necessarily that interesting with regard to the book, but it's certainly an aspect of it. So, I mean, you mentioned his son, who in the novel is in the Marines, isn't he? Green Beret. He's Green, Green Beret. Beret yeah. And he's, of course, stationed in Vietnam. And we were discussing earlier the, the immediate parallels between World War II and the Vietnam War, which are probably sort of front and centre when this first novel, this novel's first published. I mean, Dublin, you've been teaching recently on the Vietnam War. What parallels are worth digging out this feeds into a big anti-war movement which consciously and, and explicitly references Dresden as a reason for not doing what they're doing in um, in Vietnam, particularly firebombing and the use of napalm um, which is obviously on, on TV uh, accidentally used on, on civilians and so forth um, so it kind of feeds into that and of course in, in that sense you can't not see it as an anti-warfare or some kind of an argument as at least trying to draw attention to the suffering that the US Army is, is, is causing um, I think there's a bit of an irony because of the the, the scale the, of the it the scale of it isn't as much in, isn't actually as bad in Vietnam as it is in or the scale of the the civilian accidental civilian destruction um, there is a far more conscious effort in Vietnam to avoid that, whereas in, in the Second World War there is a conscious effort to cause that. To, to the point where Dresden's actually one of the relatively smaller city destructions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the numbers you quote are wrong in, yeah. in, for, for the deaths in Dresden. Um, it, it's probably about 100,000 less than, than he quotes in the book. He quotes about 135 historians now think it's far closer to 30 or 40, um, which doesn't diminish it in any way. But... but uh, you know, the, his focus is on again. His focus is on the, the destruction and the, and, the, and the experience to these people on the ground, too. and it feeds in and it preys on 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 obviously a turn since the Second World War among the public. I think towards how people, how other people experience the destruction that they are now dishing out, and um, particularly as the global superpower. And, and importantly, of American literature becoming, if not anti-war, but certainly less explicitly pro-military. Certainly conscious of its of its role in the yeah. world and, and the damage it's doing to the world, um, it, it certainly feeds into that. Yeah, I think I mean I appreciate your comments on scale, but that I think I draw a fundamentally stronger parallel in that with both the American campaign air campaign in Europe and the American air campaign in Vietnam, they're trying to perform fundamentally similar things in that air power is chosen as a way to project power at a distance, mm -hmm. but is inherently indiscriminate and doesn't appear to be doing much for the overall strategy, and yet it's still a strategy that's used. <laughs> We're going into some debates yeah. that are ongoing about yeah. the use of air power in Vietnam. There are arguments completely on the other side that they didn't go far enough. But 
yeah, I don't think this this is the time or the place to go into those kind of debates. Uh, to come back on the point of the Green Berets, I think it's important that he's in the Green Berets, his son. Because the Green Berets were the specialist counterinsurgency unit in Vietnam, often linked. I, I, I don't know whether his son was linked, I don't know whether, or anything, but often it's the Green Berets that, that are the ones that are really pushing the moral lines in what the American ground troops are doing in Vietnam. They're the ones who are specialist counterinsurgency, deep behind enemy lines. Um, uh, and, and often in Cambodia and Laos where they're not supposed to be um, so it, it, I thought it was quite interesting that he made it the point that he was explicitly a Green Beret and not just another soldier uh, because the Green Berets are specialist trained, probably volunteered for that Yeah, well, I mean, well was, Billy is a non-combat conscript right? He's, yeah. a, he's a church organist Yeah, and yet his son is Special Forces Pro who's, who's well up for this war yeah. The Green Berets also had their own mythology, right? Yeah. Their entire thing set up about you know being special forces and all the all the things that come with that. I mean, they're the perfect paragon of action exactly. in precisely the yeah. way that Billy is not. Hmm. Yeah. I was wondering something about um, thinking about the timing of the novel about how this is kind of coming out at a time when you're starting to get multiple narratives of war in the media, yeah. right? Which is the big thing about Vietnam, right? I mean, kind of televised war and and so and so on I mean it's, it, it, it seems to be jumping on that as a kind of way of splintering splintering those narratives and, and, and having narratives that are kind of less from authority I mean one of the things the, the, the radio program that he interrupts in the book is about the death of the author or the death of the novel sorry yeah. as a kind of literary form and all of that kind of thing and I mean this is him absolutely defending to the hill his ability to express himself through that form even if he has to tear it up stick it around and kind of stick it back together again mm. um, if, there's, if there's one thing the novel says which you know kind of propaganda films don't allow you to say is, is as we said earlier I was here mm. yeah. so uh, one, one thing we've, we've, we've oddly only talked about half the novel in that you wouldn't necessarily know it from us so far but half the novel takes place apparently on an alien the alien world of Trollfamador where Billy Pilgrim is kidnapped and taken so it intersperses World War Two with this alien human zoo, which they put him in. What did people think of that? I th I thought it was pretty. Obviously, this is a guy having a breakdown, that, who's who's trying to, to to construct this as a means of dealing with his own experiences of the Germans and uh, his experiences at Trafalgar mirror the experiences that he. Um, that he has on the hand, by the hands of the Germans, you know, he's forced to strip. Of course, it's very, it's very humiliating and dehumanizing what he's gone through as a prisoner of war, and kind of exhibited for the guards in that sense. And then he's put on show for the other prisoners as well because he's wearing a woman's coat, uh, and of course that's completely mirrored. Um, and Trafalgar, where, where he has a great body, he has a. You'd be right to say the, the, the quote we like is that he had a tremendous wang, there which is go. probably the only time we get to use that word on the podcast, unless we pick up a really weird book. Yeah, and he gets to sleep with a porn star, this kind of thing. Yeah. So he's, it, it, it's as I was reading, it, and I don't have this kind of so, such such a, a grounding in, in, in trauma and memory and how people reconstruct their their experiences. But this is obviously his in his depressed. And he is suffering from depression. I think that's obvious. But that's how he tries to deal with his experiences. Um, it's like the projection of memories. Okay. Yeah. 
It's the way, I don't know if that makes sense. That's grounded in any memory theory, basically, but it almost seems like the way he's projecting his memories is onto something that he is more able to account in this regard. Rather than saying, I've experienced X, Y, and Z, if I frame it this way, I can try to deal with it in a more grounded understanding, basically. And by doing this, he puts it into one of the most ridiculous places impossible, but by doing so, it becomes understandable. He, the Trafalmadorians as well take away the question of why. Yeah. And that's why... They absolve yeah, him, right? Yeah, they absolve him, they absolve... They, they just take morality out of the question. Mm. And again, it, it focuses rather on his experience of uh, both in the war and, and at the hands of these aliens. Well, I mean, we, we've spoken before about how science fiction is sort of a canvas for, us, for writers and audiences to explore ideas you can't explore within the confines of the normal world. And I think this is probably the first example of a book in which that's happening in character, Right. Billy is using the Trafalmadorian Zoo to explore ideas of who he is and what morality is. And so the question of whether it actually happened is actually, well, no, it's his own science fiction story. I think he reorients the question slightly in, in the sense that because it's a book fundamentally based on experience, so there's very few points of objective reference in the book. Um, the standard question that's raised in these things is, oh, you know, is, is Trafalmador real? Or is it him projecting? Or is it him hallucinating or whatever? I think actually the question is, is it real enough? At which point it clearly is, yeah. right? Because it's his own inner world and, 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 and so on. I actually wonder if maybe a nicer way to look at it is actually, maybe it's actually the heart of like what Billy is, or like Von Guth as well, though. It's actually his internal dialogue you know, probably maybe the more, the purest part of it is kind of going, you know, what am I about? What's death about? And it's actually him speaking to himself, basically, for those pages where the aliens are meant to be. Um, it's just his internal monologue, just trying to filter through actually what's happened. And the way for actually trying and get that across is like, well, we have to have someone there to talk to it about, so let's bring in an alien to actually try and have this conversation rather than just an internal dialogue. Yeah, there's a quote here. Uh, so they were trying to reinvent themselves and their universe. Science fiction was a big help. He explicitly says in, in the book. Yeah, I, I think the other nice thing about it is it messes with the time time scale of of the, of the book. I mean, I I don't. I think I was more than willing, at least the first couple of times I read it. I think I was more than willing to entertain that it 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 might be real. Actually, yeah. it really doesn't bother me whether <laughs> whether it is or not. I I I don't see it as any. It certainly doesn't matter. I, I yeah I, I I don't think it does not not particularly. I mean not not unless we're supposed to be feeling sorry for him or not. It strangely, but, it makes it more obvious to the reader, I think, what he's trying to do. Yeah. On on the bigger scale, which is to deal with his memory of of this ex or this experience. Whereas in the logic of the book, yeah, it doesn't. I don't think. It, I think it lends itself just to highlighting the fragility of all. You know, he's not able to pin it down, so he takes us in this detour. If you were to try and write down your memories, it is going to be fragile, and because his experience is one horror as well, though, you go back to all these little incidents from when he was a child. You know, at the Grand Canyon, and he pees himself, and then there's another aspect on his holiday, and it all kind of it highlights the fact that his, his own emotional state basically as he's grown up to this one point and then afterwards as well and just the complete fragility of memory of recall 
and just of his life as well though basically you know the instability of it all and even afterwards he's still haunted by tragedy as well though the loss of his, his father-in-law the loss of his wife as well though um, well this is exactly what happens and I mean th this is exactly the kind of thing that Bruce was trying to put forward right in, in search of lost time I mean the difference is you know kind of non-linear memory and all that kind of stuff I mean the difference is Proust feels the need to do it over the course of what seven eight novels yeah. and doesn't use any eye hand plunger aliens yeah yeah and and, and Vonnegut manages to do it in 140 so um, I don't know where I was going with that so. <laughs> well, that's much easier to read <laughs> well no it is much easier to read I, I, I think I mean you know Proust being the kind of guy that he was wanted to go through absolutely everything whereas Vonnegut is but if we're saying, and I think we are, that trying to understand these experiences has merit, then you do want a shorter book, right? That it is an inherently greater achievement to get it done in a book you can put in a reading list. Well, not necessarily. You don't want a shorter book. You just want a book. Yeah. Regardless, because... Not so. <laughs> it's regardless of the length. You want to see his experiences, you know. If it takes him seven volumes to get to the heart of the story, it takes him seven volumes. If it takes him 150 pages... That's a personal story that's been ever counting here. So I don't think the length of it's got nothing to do with it here. It's like he probably could have spent, you know, 500 pages. Or I think for him, he could have just narrowed down to the last 10 pages, basically. That would be his story. Well, actually, I was just thinking, but I, I think, I mean, the difference with someone like Proust, who spent ages and ages and ages doing this stuff, and it kind of doesn't really have much of a point at the end of it, is actually the, the you know, that's the Dresden book. Mm. Right? You know, Proust's book isn't a Dresden book, it's a book about his entire life, right? Um, up until that point, following all the threads and all that kind of stuff. But, I mean, this is this is something different in, in, in the sense that everything comes back to that. You know, it's the, it's the kind of thing that pushes his memory down different ways and forces him to make different connections um, and, and everything else. Did you like Billy? No. no. So he's... No, it's just because I, I I rarely read so much anything that's read anything about characters that's so inactive when it's frustrating you're shouting right? at him sometimes <laughs> to, to do something stand up you know there's somebody who stands up against the Nazi the American Nazi and he stands there watching it um, uh, his father-in-law and, and so forth but this is somebody who, who refuses to engage with the morality or refuses to to do stuff he, he marries for business connections yeah. and doesn't even do it in a Machiavellian, oh, this will make me rich way. He just, oh, okay, yeah. this will do way. And it's kind of path of least resistance. Kind of. Well, I mean, this is the only time, this is the only time he actually uses his non-linear time travel thing to his advantage in that he chooses to marry the girl because he's seen into the future and knows that it's palatable. And that's actually, that's the only time he does that. It's like, well, eh, I don't think I like that part of you, Billy. Although, interestingly, of course... You, you could argue that because where he, which town he comes from, he's always going to become an optometrist. But everything Billy does when he's not at war is his attempt to make people understand the world around him. That includes making him able to see. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, he, 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 he does, he genuinely does try to help people in his daily trade. He, he makes them, you know, better at seeing things. And he probably also genuinely thinks he's helping people by going on these weird lecture tours. Yeah, I think, I mean, this follows up actually on some of the stuff Doug was saying about the anti war movement. I mean, a lot of that was focused upon making things better you know you see war as a kind of repeated uh, occurrence you know that happens every now and again or happens repeatedly um, 
and you know there's this kind of underlying thing that we can make the world better by avoiding it where actually I think Billy's longing throughout the book is to make things less bad which is an entirely different state of affairs um, you know the, the, the inscription on the gravestone everything was beautiful and nothing hurt is a negative framing of oh you know by the way they've gone to heaven and they're in a good place and they're with God and all the rest of it you know just as equally you know there's the incredibly cynical sounding thing about when he, uh, towards the end of the book when he's talking about population growth on, on, on earth uh, and he says that the planet's population is going to increase to 7 billion or something and the response is oh I suppose they'll want dignity as well won't they and I, I think that's kind of the at, at the core of what you could see as nihilism, um, but I, I, I don't think it goes all the way. I don't, I, don't, I don't think it blows kind of people wanting to hurt less. You know, it, it, it doesn't get rid of that desire. Um, it just attacks the idea that you can do anything about it, um, at least in any kind of decisive fashion. I know it's still recording, but did any of you actually ever get the references to like the white marble feet throughout the book? His daughter is always going about white marble feet, and it kept coming up, and I was just like, "What the hell are they talking?" He's got blue feet as well. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, it's something like like, uh, like there's a whole colour thing going through. What's this in reference to? I couldn't understand it. So, but it crops up like you know a handful of times. And I wondered, did anybody else pick up on it or well, I mean, the, to it further? The, the only other reference to marble I can think of, which I think is somewhat unrelated, is the photo of the sex act they refer to repeatedly. The world's first pornographic... Uh, yeah, <laughs> and they talk about the two marble columns that frame the whole thing. But, okay. yeah. Well, she's got white marble feet, he's got blue feet in, in bed or when he's walking down, and of course when he's freezing cold. Mm. There's a, there's a lot of associated colours in the book. Anytime, anytime the word, anytime death is mentioned, it's, it's blue. Yeah. And the bloody red theme uh, is red. And, and yeah. yeah, so I mean, I mean, this is the thing, right? The, the book explicitly says there's no characters. He said there's very few characters in this novel because yeah. But no, I think that I mean there are, but I, I mean they're all walking tropes, though, aren't they? I mean, to some to some extent. A lot of the stereotypes. Some of them are. The um, what's his name? The ghost steals the teapot. This. Uh, well, he's he's, somebody he, who, he's, he's the ironic character, right? But he's somebody who tries to 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 engage with the situation in some way, um, either for his own personal gain or for a far more altruistic reason. The fact is, he'd also volunteered for the war as well, hadn't he? He'd been like a teacher, yeah, he was older, I believe. Yeah. He was older. He probably. But, that, but that's what it. makes him the ironic character because he's the one that taught Western civilization. Yeah, in school, oh, okay. he 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 would be in any other war novel the protagonist, right? Yeah. He's the American hero of the image. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, he taught this subject, and then eventually he gets shot over a teapot. A teapot. Which... Did he actually include the shitting in the book? No, it doesn't. He just states that it happened. happened. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I don't think he was there. I mean, I'm I'm not sure. It's, it's, yeah, it gets a little bit confusing at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a suggestion that he's found in one of the tombs as well at the end when they're digging up yeah. Dresden and they have to flame throw the whole room or something yeah, yeah he says oh that's where so and so was yeah I'm not, I'm not sure whether it's quite funny I mean we're saying is, is there any other characters or not but I mean arguably Billy isn't really a he's character not, he's not a protagonist right not in the classical sense of the novel he's so passive in the book 
this is something we discussed way back with Neuromancer, right? Is we expect the character to at least be somehow able to drive plot and take decisions. And both Billy and Case don't, right? They're... He's just all right. Yeah. They're subject to the forces of history or supercomputers, as depending on which novel you're reading. He doesn't in any way seek to account for the war, right? I mean, it's just a place where he is and where stuff happens to him. Um, and he kind of gets pummeled, you know, pummeled around, you know, quite literally in some cases. I mean, I think there's some kind of... Uh, there's definitely incidental characters, right? Like the um, the English prisoners of war that force them to take part in theatre. Um, and, and, and the German guards like because they make war look reasonable. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But they also provide structure. Yeah, And literally. it's the one part of the book where there is structure for the first time as well, though, and like the regimented nature of it. Um, and for that, you know, even just uh, they're talking to the... One of the soldiers, he's like, you know, you do your exercises in the morning, you shave once a week, you do yeah. this, and brush your thing. teeth. And, yeah. I said that, you know, you have structure. And it's one thing the whole book's lacking is any sort of structure, apart from someone else kind of saying, you could be doing this as well, though. There is this way that you could be presenting it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's when he's been treated as a child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that idea of being treated as a child, his, his wife keeps referring to him as a child or, or threatening to treat him as a child. And that's when he. He seems to find comfort in it. Or is it that starter as well? Well, I don't know whether... I mean, the other title of the book is The Children's Crusade. This idea that the child's mentality can, can make sense of this. But that's the only kind of mentality that can make sense of it. Or this other Trafalgarian nihilism. Those are the only two ways you can approach and in any way justify war. And therefore... Well, they're not capable of going to war. And reasoning it yeah you can either know everything or nothing right yeah and if you knew everything you wouldn't bother Cause and no if you knew nothing then all you well, do I, is bother I think those two interpretations, interpretations just both revolve around the idea of innocence right the child is innocent because they don't know and the Tralfamadorian interpretation is that you're innocent because you have no choice it's free will that lends us to being bad in both those interpretations yeah yeah absolutely yeah Trafalgarians do end up blowing up the universe. Though. Yeah, the, the, the thing is, they seem to feel bad about it, but they they know it never be happens. Which I guess is the bit where I most struggled with their interpretation of time. Right? <laughs> they seem sad about something. They also view as inevitable. But I never got the sense that they felt bad about it. They're just kind of resolved. The yeah, situation. and they think Billy's stupid for not understanding. That's what happened at that moment in time. Yeah. Yeah. Why are you worried about it? Because at another moment in time, you. You're, you're alive. You're, you're having a good Which time, right? Which is a really pleasant way of engaging with this kind of the fourth dimension, like of how they are understanding of what time is. You know, um, it's a very pleasant way of actually just like having your understanding is that you're always existing, you're always there. The Earth's actually never going to destruct. That's the whole point of it. It can just like continue on basically from what they're understanding of it basically is. So as much as they're aware that yeah, at some point someone's going to be really stupid and hit that button. But it's not going to mean anything, because we'll still be here having this conversation. Yeah. yeah, a lot of people find it easier to deal with death in that kind of, with that kind of perspective. There was um, somebody for what's the BBC Radio Four program about um, books. Some some famous person comes on and talks about a book every week or something. Anyway, it was Sheen, the actor, 
And this was Which his one? Book. Three oh, of them. The Welsh one. <laughs> the Welsh Michael. Michael Sheen, yeah. And this was his book. And what his argument, his his one of his reasons was oh, I'd help me deal with death a lot better. Be this this idea that people have always existed, so it doesn't matter that yes, there's death and that will be a period, but there's also a period when they're alive, that kind of thing. Um but again, I think that's too Trafalmadorian and kind of yeah. takes yeah. away this 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 idea that you need to do something with that life as well. You need to be active, you need to do stuff. I suspect that might do us. So uh, to go back to linear time, I think it's the end of the episode. Um, thanks very much for listening. <laughs>